You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome Judy Tualatstiwa, a visual artist, a writer, a teacher, and creator of an extraordinary experience called The Dream Life of Objects, currently on display at the CCA here in Santa Fe. Judy, welcome. Thank you, Rabbi Neil. So um, let's start with what does the dream life of objects mean to you? For And share it for, for those who haven't yet seen it. What does it mean to me? Um, many layers of meaning. We all have objects that we value deeply. Actually, yesterday with Diana Taylor, I was watching... Uh, who will write our history and thinking about the objects in the Warsaw Ghetto that people risked their lives to create an archive and then buried it. And we're going to be having a discussion about that, Diana and I. There's that kind of object where an object becomes almost a shrine. I mean, that's what shrines are. They're made out of objects. And we all have personal ones that are deeply meaningful to us and help dream us as people help dream who we are. I have objects from each of my grandparents that I value deeply. One's a a piece of jewelry that probably costs a dollar. (laughs) But what do you mean it helps dream us? How do objects help dream us? What does dream mean? There's a way that we that we connect with objects. In this society, it's a very materialistic society, so we spend a lot of time with objects. But if you ask someone, which one would you take with you? If you had to pack a bag to leave forever from where you've been, which one, what would you take with you? What small object would give your life more meaning in that place where you go? So, as you know, my grandfather, whom I never knew because he died before I was born, carried the talent of his son who died at age five in his prayer bag for 27 years. Mm. That's what I mean by the dream life of objects. When you and I first met, I remember you mentioned Van Gogh's painting, um, The Wheatfield with Crows. Why, why was that such an important painting to you? I think I saw there was a great Van Gogh exhibit that went across around the country. It was at the D. Young in San Francisco is where I saw it. And that was 1970, I believe. I had no idea that I was an artist. I had buried that part of myself deeply at about age 11. And I had no concept that I was an artist. I used my energy to get involved in school, to, to help create things in the world with other people. So I had three little boys at that point, And that was a lot within a few years. Right. So I was a little tipsy-turvy. Um, and... A lot of things I had buried had been deeply buried. My first husband, Michael, and I drove to San Francisco after getting babysitter, of course, 
um, to, to see the Van Gogh show. And it was a simple chronological show. And I walked through the whole thing. And by the time I got to Wheatfield with Crows, my heart had just been opened. Almost a floodgate of opening. I could not stop crying as I stared at that painting. And I cried all the way back to our home, which was an hour away. And then I picked up a pen and I made a mark on paper as a drawing for the first time in, um, what, almost 20 years, not quite. And I could not, that was it. There was no turning back. And I think what happened, I've also noticed that in this show, by the way, someone pointed out that I work with the crow in three different... That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) And I think you pointed out that with one of them that it was there, and then I found in the continuing painting that the that the painting that most that I least wanted to part with has three crows in it. I hadn't recognized that after you said that about the crow piece, right. in which I deconstructed a crow to reconstruct it in spirit. Um, that that crow has followed me, though simple. You know, the way Van right. Gogh painted the crow is is like a child. Those yes. birds, right? And yet there was so much feeling. If he hadn't killed himself afterwards, maybe the feeling wouldn't have been there the same way. Mm. But it certainly touched me deeply, started me doing art. It, it, I can hardly explain. I just cried and cried and cried. And the things that I had buried started coming up emotionally. And the unconscious itself, what seemed to have overwhelmed Van Gogh. By the way, he was a very educated man. Mm. Um, he was not just the madman that we like to picture Um, What seemed to have overwhelmed Van Gogh, it's almost like I had to find a way to hold that, to contain that, that pain, that sorrow, um, the hurt that was generational and also part of my childhood. I had to find a way, and this was the doorway that I walked through. Since you mentioned the, the, the crow that you deconstructed to reconstruct for me it was an extremely striking piece one of one of a number of extremely striking pieces in in the dream life of objects can you talk about that piece for those who haven't yet seen it how did it come about what does it mean to you i'm discovering more and more what it means to me i'm discovering that often and we can maybe we can talk about this a little bit later that that the question gets asked years after creating the object Right. which has really, that's something that I've discovered in this show. But The Crow itself, um, in 2005, we had just bought it. We were still living on the reservation, on the Hopi Reservation, and we had just bought a home in Galisteo. But I was rushing over from Hopi to a birthday party that my friend Sean Evans was having, and I was late. It's a six-hour drive, and I'm, it's hard for me to be on time so, Sometimes I was late. I was rushing up 41. And I saw what I thought was a piece of rubber from a tire. And I went about two miles, and I thought, that wasn't rubber. That was a crow. That was a dead crow. So I turned around, which made me later, and I picked up a dead crow that lay alongside the road. Um, That year I was photographing every single day, so I photographed it. Then I put it in the refrigerator of our new house <laughs> and continued to the party. <laughs> I can't help but have the image, watch for dinner. Not that it's <laughs> art. Yes, art. it's true. <laughs> well, when I got back to Hopi and I started to, to take, I photographed it, first of all, 
with its wing out. I mean, it's such a beautiful creature. Um, then I plucked it, mm-hmm. and then I did put it in a pot to boil in order to use its bones. And my husband, came, he worked for the tribe. He had set up a mapping office, and he came home, and he said, uh, something's really wrong with that chicken. I hope we're not having <laughs> it for lunch. <laughs> and I said, honey, it's the crow. <laughs> right. And then I bleached its bones, and then I used its fit. I wanted to use the entire bird. It right. seemed so important to use the whole bird. What I didn't end up using, I buried and um, of the organs. Right. And the feathers that I didn't use, I released those in the river in Galisteo. And it was powerful to work on that. I did 25 pieces over 25 days, one each day on 12 by 12 inch paper with a, with a grid to help guide me. I tried other, other things on canvas and so on, and none of it worked. And suddenly it was just clear. I had it to pay attention, one each day, so basically a month. You mentioned earlier a question which brought up a question for me and I'm I was very moved when I when I walked around the dream life of objects because I was experiencing art in a different way as somebody who is colorblind and um, who has avoided art for most of my life um, for fear of mockery and things like that Um, and actually being at the dream life of objects has really brought out for me a, a very different sense of you know, they're the artist within. Um, is art, I, I always saw art as an answer to a question. Uh, what is in front of me? Um, what am I trying to express here? What, what do I want to release? But as I talk to you, I wonder, is art actually the question as opposed to the answer? As opposed to answering the question? I don't, I think art is that there are no answers to the big questions. <clears throat> it's really interesting that you pose it as these questions. What happened as I was looking at the work a couple of weeks ago is I realized that one of the pieces, Das Buch der Fragen, ask a question. It's the book of questions. And the question is, how does one speak to God after the Holocaust? And I was standing next to one of the continuing paintings with the figure where I had just outlined the mud and felt what it was to discover totems. And I realized that I had responded to that question 20 years earlier, but hadn't asked the question until 20 years later. And that all of my work in some way relates to that question that I was only able to pose in 2013. How does one speak to God after the Holocaust? And when I say Holocaust and I say God, I am not limiting it. I was brought up what might be called in the internationalist Jewish home. (laughs) That's one way to think of it, uh, with the idea that Jews are responsible, deeply responsible for what happens in the world. And um, that the concept of chosen people is that we are chosen to be responsible. It's not like we're better than. Right. We're chosen to be responsible. So I was brought up in that particular ethic a little crazily because beyond internationalists, they were always also Jewish communist atheists. And it was a crazy time to be any of that in America, especially communist. And, and there was problems with being Jewish, as the Rosenbergs. 
Uh, but that's political material. What my work tries to do is go down below the political. Part of being brought up in a home where you have an ideology is that um, the ends justify the means. Right. I chose to live an unlived life of my parents. I didn't choose. It chose me. And there was, and it really was like that, that where, where process is everything. Right. And so standing there and realizing that the question I have been asking all these years is how does one speak to God after the Holocaust? Speak with God. What kind of questions do we ask? I want us to hold that as we take our break because you're moving into a very deeply spiritual aspect of your work, which I think is really important. So we'll take a break. And um, when we come back, let's explore the spirituality of your work. So you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Uh, my guest this evening, Judy Tuwalatstiwa, a visual artist, writer and teacher. And we'll be back after this break. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Judy Tuwalatstiwa, a visual artist, writer, teacher, creator of the rather extraordinary experience, The Dream Life of Objects, currently at the CCA. Before we took our break, um, you moved into a very deeply spiritual um, area uh, of your work. I, and, and specifically raised the question, how does one speak of God with God to God after the Holocaust? I find it really interesting for me as a rabbi that I would answer that question with words. Um, and you don't. It's, what does that mean? I, I, because, because as you showed me around the sacred life of objects, I began to realize that um, how monolithic I am in my language or in my expression, I should say, that my natural tendency as a rabbi is to be verbose, um, is to talk and to write and to, and to use words um, and to define spirituality almost with words. Um, and you seemed, when I uh, went around the exhibit, you seemed to be saying to me, there's much more to this than that. So for you, I guess, in words, and I know it's difficult because this is a radio show describing art, but what does it mean for you in terms of the spiritual aspect of your work? Or, or how can one answer deeply spiritual questions with art? I don't think about answering those questions when I'm working. Um, I became leery of words growing up in a home where where words could be used as bullets mm. where words could be used to justify things that I didn't feel were justifiable where language could be moved around that way um, and and it was a very articulate home I mean part of the Jewish tradition is language is the written word as well as the spoken word I became very, very leery of words. I think that's part of what catapulted me into being a visual artist and later coming back to writing and to thinking. I was trained in English literature, so I was right. trained rigorously at two very good colleges, um, two very good universities. So it, it's not 
that they haven't been there the whole time. What I discovered recently was that sense that the image holds so many possibilities and it goes to something totally essential. And if my work is about anything, it's about reaching into the essential. We've talked about this, about... What does that mean for you? For me, it's, it's the mother's heartbeat and it's the touch of the mother's skin. Those are the two basic languages that we first know. Within the womb, it's the heartbeat. And then the first thing we know of love is the touch of skin. So that's pretty essential. And to try, not to try to, but, and I didn't realize that until after my mother died at 95 in 2007, how essential that, that was. That's when I realized it. And I think when we get too far, and I said this in the film, when we get too far away from that, that we lose ourselves. And what the art does for me, I realize, there's often repetition in my work. There was for many, many years as I learned to contain the unconscious material. Because I don't have a theory about what life means, I, I don't, that's, I'm not, because I work from the pure process mm -hmm. in essence, it's like constantly discovering that the mystery grows and grows and grows. So when I enter the studio, it's a process of discovering, not of figuring out. And it's not that the work is better now than it was 20 years ago. No, I was in a different part of the process of discovery. And now I can understand that work better than I could when I made it. Because of that, there's a wholeness to it. Mm -hmm. And I think what images do is they allow us to feel and think on many, many levels. I'm, I'm particularly interested. One of the questions that I was going to ask you is, do you discover or uncover or create? But I think you've just answered that for me. Is that in my conversations with artists on this show, discovery is, is key. And... That seems to me to be a very deeply spiritual process of self-discovery, but more than that, the discovery of our relationship with everything around us, as opposed to, I guess, what I was saying before, which is response, um, which is very narrow and directed. So what does, what does that mean for you, I guess, in some sense, in a spiritual level, can you, can you talk any more about the discovery? What is the discovery? The discovery has something to do with healing, with deep, deep healing. I knew when I started doing art, at some point I realized, okay, there were four things that I wrote down on the back of the first drawing I made. Search for proportion. When you are too hungry, nothing is ever enough. Jewish hand. Um, how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Hmm. Those were the four sentences that I wrote. And I think I'm at a point where, those are gonna, where I'm looking at those again to see if they are still what I need to be addressing unconsciously right. because I think something has changed and I need to see what has changed and that, that I'll find out. Um, 
from the beginning, I knew that my work was about healing some a wound deep in me, many wounds, generational wounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, my grandparents came to the Golden Land because they could no longer live where they were. Some from Belarus, where it was very, very beautiful. I always pictured it as this kind of desert, like in Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> no, they lived in a beautiful village near a beautiful mountain. Right. Um, and they had to leave. Right. And they brought burden, and they brought hope. They brought fear, and they also brought, again, hope. Um, I am their hope. Right. I am their hope. Right. Their hope that their children would be educated. We were. Their grandchildren were. Right. Highly educated. So we helped live their dream. But the woundedness continued. And my work has led me into that, into working with that woundedness. I haven't shown much of the psychological work that I've done. But I will at some point. Probably through a book. But I always knew that I had to heal the wounds inside me in order to make the work universal. That if I didn't do that, the work would stay very personal. And I needed it to, to speak universally, that that would be what the healing was about. So is the process of discovery, the process of life, of discovering our own burden and our own pain, our woundedness, brokenness, because you particularly work with a lot of brokenness, is that discovery um, both the things that we carry, the, the burden and the hope? Is, is that what it is for you? It has been that. I don't know what it will become. I don't know what it will become. Having this show and working with the incredible team that I worked with um, in helping to curate it and to lay it out and hang it has, is allowing me to look at the work in a new way, to integrate it in a new way. And so I don't know what will happen after this in my studio. But you'll discover. <laughs> I'll find <laughs> right. out. Right. And I think the discovery is knowing that there's no answer. Right. That has been a, a key all through it. That the question, that central question that I'm asking, that, that, that I don't know any answer. But there's something about the mystery itself, the mystery of creation and destruction, Mm-hmm. Those two mm-hmm. together, mm-hmm. which we'd rather just have the creation part. Right. <laughs> um, that is so, and that's what I've got to explore in the continuing paintings, was creation and destruction at the same time. The, that's probably the, the most essential work that I've done. This all brings me back to the crow. I didn't know I'd be coming back here. It brings me back to the crow um, of the destruction of, of crow into the rebuilding of crow and as a former astrophysicist really i was very challenged walking around the secret uh, the the dream life of objects because um because it made me realize how much i think in binary terms something is or it isn't um you know and that's a very scientific way of thinking whereas when i'm looking at a reconstructed crow is it still crow is it, is it crow in its essence or is it no longer crow? Um, and um, What did you think? 
I don't know. I, that's part of the 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 point in 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 our previous show. We mentioned about science and falsificationism. Um, Karl Popper talking about how something is only scientific if it is possible to disprove it, um, and that's how science advances by 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 saying this is no longer true. This is what we believed to be true. Now we know that is not true. And so science <laughs> discovers um, in a different way. You can't, you can't falsify a, a, a crow that exists in many different frames. It, it just is. But it's speaking in a very different way. In a very different language. Right. And it's a language that... Um, I tried to honor the crow and to let it... And what happened for me is that its spirit is alive in those images. And certainly when people look at it, they start crying. Mm. They have many different experiences, experiences that they find very difficult to put into language. So to me, the feathers became their own language, the shadows of the bones, the Mm. shadows of the feathers... And so it changes, that language that changes all day, that this, very, this bird with these very dark feathers and these very white bones, mm. and you think of how I worked in black, red, and white for 25 years only, um, and how they catch the light and throw the shadow, that that's the language of light and of image. And let there be light, I think. <laughs> right. was. So let me ask with our final few minutes. Um, I guess for me that the question is, is almost the, the simple question of the relationship between science and art, which is a simple question, but not a simple question, obviously, um, because the deconstructing is almost the falsificationism um, it's almost a way of saying it's not that simple. It speaks in different ways. How do you, in, in the last couple of minutes, how, how do you see that relationship? Or, or at least what's the place of art in such a scientific society? Oh, I think they're, um, they're cousins. That discussion that I had with David Krakauer was about, who's a scientist, was about their relationship, really their relationship, not the differences, but their relationship. And if you think of um, theory, science is, you, you need a theory and then you have to disprove it or prove it. And, mm-hmm. Well, that word goes back to the word thea, which means the word theater comes from, the mm. word theory comes from it. And thea simply means to see. And both allow us to see. And I think that they speak deeply to each other. I think that's always been my experience. I don't don't know a lot about the quantum field, but certainly standing next to something I did in 1987 and realizing that in the other room there was a piece from 2013 Mm -hmm. where I asked the question that I responded to in 1987 when I didn't know how to pose the question. There's something that I think science can work with that about fields and the way that we think and what we experience. This has been just absolutely fascinating. And um, I really want to thank you for for coming and and sharing more of your thoughts um, about the dream life of objects and seeing and language. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. And thank you again to my guest, Judy Tualetstiwa, um, artist, creator, discoverer. Um, it's really been fascinating talking to you. And until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>